Afrika Rise and Shine Afrika Zorza Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhoko and Figilelingwati. In our top stories, UN pays tribute to Botswana's late president, Serki Dumile Masire, and Senegal's former president, Abdoulaye Wade, makes a political comeback. In economics news, Kenyans welcome the reduction of state officers' salaries, and in sports news, Sudan readmitted to international football. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. Despite progress in consolidating democracy in West Africa and the Sahel, the security situation there continues to be a cause for concern. That was the message UN Special Representative for the region, Mohamed Ibn Chambers, delivered to the Security Council. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. Mr. Chambers said that terrorism and violent extremism have exacerbated traditional threats. These factors combined with climate change, an increase in the population of young people, unemployment and unchecked urbanization constitute push factors underpinning the surge in regular migration and human trafficking. Egyptian churches are suspending pilgrimage, holidays and conferences for the remainder of July and August after authorities warned about possible attacks by Islamic militants. Christian activist Ishak Ibrahim reported the suspension by the majority Coptic Orthodox and the smaller Anglican and Catholic churches. Security officials and pastors have confirmed his account. The officials say the warning was delivered to church representatives during a meeting this week with top army and security commanders in the southern city of Asut. They've also been told that army troops would be deployed outside monasteries hosting major religious festivals in coming weeks. South African political parties represented in Parliament have until the close of business day to make submissions on how they envisage the vote of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma should be conducted. National Assembly Speaker Bale Kambete has asked parties to indicate whether they prefer a secret or open ballot when the motion is debated on the 8th of next month. Lulama Maja reports. Mbete will announce her decision on the matter after political parties have submitted their views on how voting should be conducted. The majority of opposition parties have indicated that they want a secret ballot. The UDM, supported by other parties, took the matter to the Constitutional Court and the court ruled that Mbete has powers to allow for a secret ballot. However, the president earlier indicated that he preferred an open vote as the previous motions against him were voted openly. Yeah. The UN is appealing for 328 million US dollars to support its work in Eritrea 
that addresses issues such as food insecurity, health, infant mortality, access to clean water and improved sanitation. The appeal was launched in New York on Thursday by senior humanitarian official John Ging, who has recently returned from the country, which he described as quite isolated and off the media radar screen. King says there has been very measurable and positive improvements in the lives of people who depend on UN programs. Now, I don't want to overstate the progress. Um, It's significant because uh, it is on a positive trajectory, but we have a long way to go. Um, And as a country, as I said, 179 out of 188 on that Human Development Index, we need to speed up and accelerate our efforts in terms of supporting the programming that is being done across the board. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has hinted that his country's position on climate change could be reviewed. He was addressing the media in Paris ahead of the Bastille Day celebrations. Trump says something could happen with respect to the Paris Accord on climate change, from which the U.S. withdrew six weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, something could happen with respect to the Paris Accord. We'll see what happens. But uh, we will talk about that over the coming period of time. And if it happens, that'll be wonderful. And if it doesn't, that'll be okay too. But we'll see what happens. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. The United Nations General Assembly has paid tribute to Botswana's late president, Serki Dumile Masire, as one of Africa's most influential presidents. Masire passed away on the 22nd of June in 19, at the age of 91. The United Nations Secretariat and regional groupings lauded his example as a Democrat, a statesman, a visionary and a peacemaker in Africa. After a moment of silence, Sir Ketumile Masire was lauded as a leader who steered Botswana from the lower ranks of a least developed state to its place today as a stable middle-income country. General Assembly President Peter Thompson. He became a newspaper editor, a political visionary, a finance minister, a president and a peacemaker. In each and every role, it was clear his primary objective was to advance the development of his people, his country, and his region. It is in no small part due to the wise and able leadership of Sir Ketemele that Botswana has become a model for advancing democracy and economic development. Speaking on behalf of the Secretary-General, his chef de cabinet, Maria Luisa Ribeiro-Viotti. He devised and implemented far-sighted policies which guided Botswana since attaining its freedom half a century ago. Sir Ketumili's focus on people-centered development, particularly in health and education, helped enable Botswana to make remarkable progress in the years since independence. Botswana is recognized as a model of good governance with an established strong constitutional and democratic tradition. He was praised for his mediation efforts in countries like Kenya, Rwanda and Congo, while his work placing Botswana on a path to development has won him global acclaim. Chadian Ambassador Ali Alife Mustafa on behalf of the Africa Group. La prosperité de 2,200,000 Botswanais 
the prosperity of two and a half million Botswana, the peace and security that they enjoy, and the happy prospects for the future are no doubt the work of the deceased who toiled in a difficult context of southern Africa, which was besieged by many problems. He nevertheless developed the conditions for what we now call the miracle of Botswana. Botswana's ambassador to the UN, Charles Ntwahai, with a final word. Sir Kitumile was a, was a distinguished statesman and clearly one of Africa's best leaders. He touched many lives, both within Botswana and outside Botswana, and was a, a source of inspiration to all who cherished freedom, democracy, respect for human rights, and the rule of law. He set a good example in Africa, which was a second example of a leader who voluntarily relinquished office in 1998 before the constitutional end of his mandate. Sir Ketumila Masire was buried at his birthplace of Kanye late last month. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. The political comeback of Senegalese former President Abdoulaye Wade has been described by some as a ploy to get his son to ascend to the presidency. The 91-year-old politician returned to Senegal this week after spending years abroad following a failed attempt at securing a third term in office. He will be heading up the list of candidates for his opposition party, Senegalese Democratic Party, in the upcoming legislative elections. He is also heading up other opposition parties that are working together to obtain a majority in parliament. Channel Africa spoke to Professor Mamadou Diouf about the significance of Wade's political comeback. I think that it's not really about what he's going to offer. It is about the support needed by his followers and the members of his party. I think after he lost in 2012, followed by the arrest of his son and the arrest of many of the leaders of his party. The former ruling party was completely in disarray. But today, you know, the interesting aspect is five years after the election of Macky Sall, the country is still actually experiencing many of the problem it's experienced during what's 12 years in power mm-hmm. that nothing has changed as a result the situation is offering an opportunity to this old man who remained the most popular politician of senegal till today now prof if once party wins more than 75 seats in parliament it will be a majority party but some critics have claimed he may have his party uh, propose an amnesty law for his son so that he can run for president in 2019 do you share this sentiment prof yeah, I think the whole plan is to win the legislative election, put the current president in a corner, and in 2019 allow his son to run and win. This is, this is basically his plan and the plan of his party. His party has already selected his son as their candidate for the next presidential election. So he's just following the plan they have already adopted, uh, even a little bit before he lost power, because the idea was pass 
laughing at the baton to his son, which didn't work. Now, how much support Prof. does uh, Abdullahi Ward still have in uh, Senegal? I think he still has huge support. I cannot say that he has a majority, but the disappointment of the Senegalese today and the fact that basically Matisal reproduced uh, Ward's behavior, he's really his inheritor more than Ward's son. He has done exactly everything Ward has done. Uh, come, you know, saying something and changing his mind, having a huge corrupt entourage, and finally not actually uh, responding positively to people's demand, in particular the youth. So Ward is a kind of political magician. He's more a witch doctor, as you want. He knows exactly how to talk with Senegalese. He masters the rhetoric, the political, the social, the religious rhetoric. And because of his generosity, he has given so much money to so many people that he still can count on those people to support him, to fight for him. And in particular right now, he's still actually enjoying support from the Murids, which is one of the largest and most, uh, you know, active Muslim brotherhood in Senegal. That was Professor Mamadou Diouf, Professor of African Studies at Columbia University, on the line from Bamako, Mali, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjelele. The South African Communist Party's 14th National Congress has begun discussing proposals on strengthening the party with the status of the tripartite alliance featuring high on the agenda. The alliance has been under strain following public spats over President Jacob Zuma's continued stay in office. Both the SACP and Kasatu want President Zuma to step down as head of state. This is in the wake of controversy surrounding his friends, the Gupta family. Paho compiled this report. Heightened tensions in the tripartite alliance have fueled calls for some within the SACP that the party should consider contesting elections independently. While no decision has been made thus far about contesting state power, SACP leadership seems to be discouraging the idea. Yesterday, newly elected first deputy general secretary Solima Paila called on the SACP to support the ANC in trying to resolve current challenges. Outgoing first deputy general secretary Jeremy Cronin also echoed similar sentiments saying not all has been lost since 2007 just before the ANC's elective congress in Polokwane. Whatever the illusions and mistakes that we made in the run-up to Polokwane and Polokwane, we want to argue as we did in the political report as well that there were significant advances on the strategic agenda that the party was trying to set. We weren't just taken for a ride, full stop. Uh, We might have been betrayed as Comrade Blade said, uh, as later on, we, we certainly were in some cases, um, but we're not playing solo, comrades. We, we're engaged in a struggle, including a struggle inside of our own organization, but particularly a struggle within the broader alliance, within the state, and across society. So advances, there are always going to be pushbacks. There are people who don't like the agenda that we're driving. Cronin has also alluded to changing political landscape, which has seen a sudden rise of opposition parties. We also need, in this new circumstance, to ask questions about who else is mobilizing, because we have a newish reality, which is the 
EFF, which has shown an ability, demagogically of course by and large, to mobilize quite significantly. We shouldn't underrate that. And also what is interesting and challenging is that the DA is also showing a capacity to mobilize in the streets, to mobilize communities. And it's not whites, just in fact it's overwhelmingly not just whites that are being mobilized by the DAs. And then of course there was the student struggles and so forth. And ongoing and in fact a rise again of local township so-called service delivery protests. Where are we as an alliance in all of this space? Have we created space for others to operate in this? Meanwhile, the Communist Party also seeks ways to ensure that it renews itself by, amongst others, locating itself within community struggles and ensure that its membership is of high moral standing. Mapaila says the party will institutionalize political education within its ranks. We are electing a new central committee from this Congress. This central committee must itself undergo an induction, even if you have retained the officials, for instance. You must not say is the general secretary, therefore he knows. We must go and sit and get party cadres, scholars of different expertise to come and, in, and read the constitution of the party, its principles, and talk to the leadership about what is expected of them. The commissions are expected to continue with deliberations until tomorrow afternoon. I'm Amos Power in Boxbeck. It's 7.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1960. Patrice Lumumba breaks off diplomatic relations with Belgium and calls on the United Nations and Soviet Union for aid in the growing crisis. That was today in history in the year 1960. South Africans need to take responsibility for the direction the country is taking and stop relying on the governing ANC. This is according to former ANC MP Feiki Mandur, who was speaking at the Cape Town Press Club about her self-published book. In the book, Mandur chronicles her life and her involvement in ANC politics. While commenting on the politics of the day, Mentur also repeated claims of sexual harassment against President Jacob Zuma. Mentur made headlines last year when she claimed that she was offered a cabinet post by the Gupta. Zeline Merrington has more. Controversial ANC MP Feiki Mentor says the governing party is no longer the hope of the masses. How can you expect a party that brought us to this mess to be the party that salvages the country from the same mess. Yes, if Ngoza Zanazuma takes over, it will be the quick end of the ANC. Yes, if Cyril takes over, it might not be as quick as when it will happen with Ngoza Zana. But I think we should begin to worry about South Africa more than we worry about a party that has brought us up to here so far in the mess that we are in. Mentor again repeated claims of sexual harassment against President Jacob Zuma. She says there were two incidents of improper advances, the last one being in 2005. He moved and came to sit on my couch. And I, I kept on moving away and he kept on moving towards me. He kept on moving away. 
And then I took my bag from the coffee table and put it handbag in between us. And then he dead still shoved his hand between my thighs. If that is not persistence, I don't know what is persistence. And she dared the president to sue her. And those that want to go to court, they can go to court. We will meet in court. In fact, I've been trying to drag Zuma to court for a long time. So it would be nice to meet him in court. Repeated attempts to contact the presidency for comment were unsuccessful. I'm Zaline Merrington in Cape Town. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Hi, my name is Ray Chikapa Piri, Moana just now Piri, Angabadu Agudeza. All I can wish you is that please listen to Channel Africa, but much more, be safe. Let's go back in time to today in 1958. The army of Iraq overthrows the monarchy. Iraq's King Faisal and Premier Nouri Es Saeed are assassinated in a Baghdad coup and King Hussein assumes power as head of the Arab Federation. That was today in history in the year 1958. Kenyans have backed the decision by the country's Salary and Remuneration Commission to reduce salaries for state officers, including the president, his deputy and the members of parliament. In a raft of reforms announced on Monday, the commission said the move would cut the country's ballooning wage bill by 35%. Kenyans, although skeptical that the new guidelines will be implemented, say the decision has been too long coming. Sarah Kimani reports. At the beginning of their parliamentary term in 2013, Kenyan members of parliament, already among the best paid in the world, voted to increase their salaries by 130%, despite protests by angry Kenyans. The new guidelines by the Salaries and Remuneration Commission will slash their pay by 12% and see them lose their allowances. They will now take home $6,000, down from 7000 Many Kenyans see MPs as a symbol of greed. We sought their views on the announcement. I'm happy because uh, there's no point of uh, having an economy where others are being paid a lot of money while other people are really suffering. We're not very economically strong, so it's better. So that um, there's equity. There are people who are living below even the minimum age. The announcement comes ahead of this year's general election. And so some Kenyans see this as a campaign ploy. 
This is what they would have done that early. So doing it today helps nothing. Because when the legislators will be back, they will hike that salary. Some think the commission could have done better. Only lost 12%. That's rubbish. They won't even increase our salaries by 12%. And they think it's wonderful that they reduced theirs by 12 The president earns more in a month than I earn in a year. It's embarrassing. Also affected is the president's salary, which will be cut to $15,000 a month from the current $17,000. President Kenyatta, who is seeking re-election, welcomed the move. The days of wasteful allowances and peculiar but inexplicable payments are behind us. Kenya's public sector wage bill currently stands at 9.5% of the GDP. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. United Nations, an innovative project that has given former says an innovative project that has given former child soldiers access to education in Sudan shows the value of embracing technology for sustainable development. According to the UN Children's Fund UNICEF, these vulnerable youngsters have been able to follow the country's national curriculum using solar-powered electronic tablets. The initiative is being rolled out to displace communities in Jordan, Lebanon and Greece, as UNICEF's Sally Bernheim told Daniel Johnson. More than half of refugee children are not enrolled in primary school and less than a quarter of refugee children are not enrolled in secondary school. So the average time now for a person to be displaced from their home or their country is 17 years. So it's really important to try to keep that continuum of education and learning going. Even if it's in an informal way, it makes a huge difference for children. It also helps them to come to terms with some of the traumatic experiences that they may have been through on the way by creating a, a safe place, a sense of normalcy in being able to you know, go into some kind of school-type setting. And so in this informal learning initiative, children use tablets, and these tablets are in some cases solar-powered. How many countries are they operating in? Can you give me an example of a country where it might be happening? Solar-powered tablets are being used in Sudan right now, and this has been a project going on for the last three or four years. It's a game, actually, an interactive game that is teaching the children the official primary maths curriculum so that hopefully one day they could be integrated into you know, the nearest schools if that's possible. It's showing good results because the children are learning fast and effectively. And their math scores are almost as high as those of children who are in the formal primary schools. It's also helping children who are in such situations to get some digital literacy skills as well, which will set them in better stead for potential job opportunities later on. And knowing children, they'll be onto this in a flash. There'll be no problem to adapt to the tablet and the fact that it's a game presumably makes the whole process much easier. But I'm just wondering, can you explain exactly which children we're talking about here? Which are those ones who are being left behind? So children who are affected by emergencies, whether that's conflict emergencies or natural disasters, tend to be the ones who are most left behind because they're living often in very fragile contexts. And they frequently have to flee from their homes and they leave everything behind, including their education. And so this is a very big problem in big emergencies we see, like tsunamis, earthquakes and so on, where people are suddenly disrupted and have to leave their homes. But also 
in chronic conflicts where there's not very much media attention and children are going without access to many basic services, including education, for much of their lives. I mean, you know, some children in living in these kind of situations have never even been inside a classroom. And just quickly back to Sudan, where you have personal experience um, from the 90s, you were saying that children actually just want their clamouring for education. Yes, when I worked in Sudan during the conflict in the 90s, I often asked children, you know, what did they want? And invariably, the thing that they said that they wanted most was an education, because they knew that this was the thing that could help to open the door to a better future. So today, the basic education system in Sudan, unfortunately, is still not meeting the needs of many children who've been affected by the conflict. So former child soldiers, displaced children, street children, those who are living in remote areas, means that more than 1.8 million children in Sudan are currently not able to access primary school. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Let's go back in time to today in 1993. Somali militiamen fire on UN headquarters in a new wave of assault hours after Somali militants distribute leaflets calling for revenge attacks on American soldiers. That was today in history in the year 1993. African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines suspected Al-Shabaab militants have briefly kidnapped a Kenyan government official and five security personnel were killed in an operation to rescue her. Egyptian churches are suspending pilgrimages, holidays and conferences for the remainder of July and August after authorities warned about possible attacks by Islamic militants. And U.S. President Donald Trump has hinted that his country's position on climate change could be reviewed. Those are the stories making headlines. (music) 
Thank you, Anne. Zimbabweans have welcomed free services offered this week by the UN Population Fund in partnership with the Ministry of Health in commemoration of the World Population Day. Each year, World Population Day is commemorated on the 11th of July and since 1989, focusing attention on the importance of population issues. In commemoration of the day, UNFPA and partners has been offering free family planning information and services that include oral contraceptives, condoms and implant insertions, HIV testing and counselling, as well as cervical, cervical cancer screening free of charge. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. In commemoration of the World Population Day held on the 11th of July each year, Zimbabwean Health Ministry in partnership with the United Nations Population Fund, UNFP, have been offering free family planning and contraceptive services until Friday this week. This year's World Population Day comes at a time when experts say nearly 214 million women in developing countries who want to avoid pregnancy are not using safe and effective family planning methods for reasons ranging from lack of access to information or services to lack of support from their partners or communities. Many of those with an unmade demand for contraceptives live in the poorest countries on earth. To deal with these challenges, Minister of Health and Partners decided to offer free health services combating the cash crisis that normally restricts women from visiting health centers. After a visit to the exhibition site in the capital, hundreds of women were in queues waiting for free services. A Harare woman, Lizzie Kutsira, welcomed the free health services courtesy of the UNFP and Minister of Health. Uh, you know, this the world you are living, money is a problem nowadays. So I had it on the on television, on radio yesterday. So I decided to come because it's free. I just use five rand to get in town and then five rand to go back home. So it's, I didn't use more money. Yeah, for me, it was okay. There were no effects on me. They are good. For five years, I've been using this one. So. It's good. I don't know about the loop which I'm going to to be inserted today. I don't know. Shepard Kazarire, a pastor based in the capital, also welcomed the free health services as most of them are beyond the reach of many who live below the poverty datum line. Definitely, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to um, consider uh, several methods of contraceptives because you understand they work differently with different people. So it's a point which is supposed to be taken and also people need uh, education. They also need an awareness and uh, be able to know what type of the contraceptive which is relevant to different people. As you, they always advertise that uh, no two women are exactly the same. Though they don't conclude, they don't finish their statement. But uh, it's something which can pick likely that there has to be some differences in the contraceptive methods used by women. It's a general norm, even if you see the adverse where they come up, especially when we are looking at contraceptive issues, uh, they kind of like target women more than men. And actually some methods of contraceptive that are being advertised for men, they are, uh, a bit, uh, they are considered to be a bit, a, a bit harsh with men. Yeah, we don't take them as they are with women. Women ways uh, seem to be more friendly than men's styles. Another male Tafire Nyika Blessing Gapa spoke to Channel Africa over free services and churches that shun contraceptives. As a pastor, you know 
nowadays life is now becoming very difficult to the extent that they are not able to make ends meet. So the moment you simply uh, address them uh, about controlling their family in such like manner, they will easily understand. Those ones, they seriously need uh, education. They need to be educated. Even uh, there are some scriptures which are in the Bible which can help them to understand the concept of contraception. Adeline Maripoko from National AIDS Council, NAC, gave an overview of the free services, saying mostly women and youths were in need of educational talk related to HIV and cancer. We received many people this week, especially women. We have been seeking more information various services such as treatment of cancer. Others belong to this center Zimbabwe is one of the first family planning 2020 priority countries to reach its target of achieving 67% contraceptive prevalence rate with another two and a half years to go. However, the country has an unmet need for family planning of 10,4%, particularly among vulnerable communities, including young people. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Let's go back in time to today in 2011. Plans for a whaling sanctuary in the southern Atlantic are put off by a year after Japan and other pro-whaling nations stalled talks on the proposal at the International Whaling Commission. That was today in history in the year 2011. AFRICOM's Africa's largest technology, media and telecommunications conference and exhibition is due to take place at the Cape Town International Convention Centre in South Africa from the 7th to the 9th of November this year. The conference programme covers the most strategic issues affecting companies in Africa's digital market services, partnerships and policy amongst others. For more on this, Ntlantla Matlang spoke to Tom Kutal, Portfolio Director of Connect 365, organizer of the show. Africacom is the biggest telecoms and tech event on the continent. Um, in the last 20 years, it's been focused on telecommunications and spreading internet connectivity in Africa. Uh, in the last few years, we've broadened it now, so it's a platform for digital transformation in general. So it kind of it would impact every part of business and society in Africa looking at things like IoT, big data, as well as the, the more traditional topics like connecting Africa, uh, telecommunications infrastructure, 
Um, so that's it. So we're expecting about 13,000 people. Um, so it's, it's a big exhibition with about 16 conferences that happen around the outside. And the idea is what we call it is the, uh, an incubator for the architects of Africa's digital future. So anybody involved in Africa's digital economy, uh, we kind of come and do business in Africa, develop strategies, develop new partnerships. You've just briefly touched on some of the issues and um, topics that will be discussed. If you could just tell us more, what sort of issues will be tackled this year, 2017? Sure. So I think one of the core themes this year will be um, mapping Africa's journey towards the fourth industrial revolution. So where the, kind of the growth of Africa's digital economy and all the people that power that and enable it and how that impacts every aspect of people's lives from finance, government, um, utilities, infrastructure, healthcare, um, all these vertical markets will be impacted by digital and tech. So I think what we're looking at with Africacom is, is how that's happening, where the opportunities are, um, where the barriers are as well. So that's, that's one of the core topics. Another one that I think came up today is creating an enabling regulatory environment to spread connectivity in Africa. Um, I think there's a, sometimes there's friction between the private sector and policymakers and regulators in, in terms of being able to extend connectivity. So we're talking about things like... Um, digital inclusion and connecting the unconnected so enabling more and more people to participate in Africa's digital economy um, and this is across the whole of sub-Saharan Africa it's not just a South African issue they are two of the big topics other ones that definitely will come up I think internet of things uh, IoT opportunities is huge as, as well as big data net closely related. Another area we look at quite closely is entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, we have an area of the show called the A-Hub and this is where we showcase uh, African tech startups and introduce them to international investors as well as African investors, provide kind of mentoring programs for them to, um, I suppose, elevate entrepreneurs into startups and help startups scale into SMEs and small businesses. So who are some of the speakers that we can expect for this year's edition? Um, so the speakers at Africacom, the very broad range of people, it kind of reflects the, the nature of the event. Uh, I think um, we'd be looking at C-level uh, representatives from all of the major mobile network operators in Africa. Um, you'll have tech giants like Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Um, talking about their strategy in Africa and, and how connectivity is so important to what they do. Um, beyond that, um, the, the list, I suppose, is endless. There'll be lots of large enterprises, so um, large corporations involved in banking, utilities, manufacturing. Um, we'll have CIOs and CTOs from those organizations talking about their digital strategies, where they're investing in ICT, um, where they see... I suppose, the trouble spots and where they see the new opportunities. So that's a very quick overview. There'll also be um, venture capitalists talking about what uh, markets they see, where, where's the hot markets, whether that's you know, e-health or digital learning, fintech is a huge area this year. So how do you make sure that you know, this conference does not just become a talk shop and concrete you know, decisions are taken at this gathering? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we're, we're always looking to prevent I'm, I'm aware that some events can be a bit like that so what we try and do with africacom i think we're lucky in the sense that the, because of the scale of the show you get uh, the people who are really driving digital transformation in africa the strategic people the c-level people are all present on site um, so we run a number of exclusive kind of closed door uh, discussion groups working groups around a lot of the topics so in the program you'll see a huge range of different um presentations and panels around all of the areas that I've mentioned and then what we'll then do is take say 20 people 30 people who are the, the actual key decision makers from both the private and public sector we'll put them in a private room um, and they'll be able to talk off the record uh, often it's Chatham House rules so there can be a bit more I suppose frank and productive dialogue so the idea is that you can you know you raise an issue on the stage in front of the whole audience and then you go into these private meetings where you can really 
develop what's being discussed and create what we call actionable takeaways so people don't you don't come back each year and talk about the same problems there's actual progress being made and reported on and then you mentioned that you're expecting about 13,000 people this year is the fee attached to it how do people you know attend yeah so it varies um there's a, a lots of different ways you can engage with africacom so most people will attend as visitors for free um, you can come look at the show floor, there's free content, there's a couple of different content stages and tracks, the A-Hub, all those things you can access for free. Um, we also have conference programs, uh, these are paid for, so you can come and pay if you want a bit more strategic content or you want to learn, um, there will be about 12 of those running on site. Um, we also then have what we call our executive leaders, so these are the sort of key decision makers, the people that we really feel are those shaping Africa's digital future. So we invite those people to attend for free and host them um, at the event. So there's a number of different kind of options and ways of integrating into the show. And of course we have, I think this year will probably be about 450 exhibitors. So they'll be on the show floor, they'll be showcasing their products, their solutions, bringing their staff and getting to meet people um, mobile network operators and the large enterprises that are going through digital transformation themselves so the people who need the need the solutions that was tom kutel portfolio director of knect 365 organizer of africom conference speaking to channel africa's we have great news for you channel africa has gone mobile If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. It's 7.45 and our economics update up next with Tabisolohoko. Good morning. The Kenyan Salaries and Remuneration Commission says that the move to slash state officers' salaries, including the presidents, his deputies and the members of parliament, would cut the country's ballooning wage bill by 35%. The commission says the move will further save the country at least 89 million US dollars annually. Sarah Kimani reports. At the beginning of their parliamentary term in 2013, Kenyan members of parliament, already among the best paid in the world, voted to increase their salaries by 130%, despite protests by angry Kenyans. The new guidelines by the Salaries and Remuneration Commission will slash their pay by 12% and see them lose their allowances. Economists have expressed doubt about a short-term action plan unveiled by South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba to boost confidence in the economy. Gigaba announced a 14-point blueprint for economic recovery at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on Thursday. Tsepo Mwai reports. Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba has announced short-term measures to reform the structure of the local economy. The action plan aims to tackle some of the risks facing the local economy. Many of the issues to be addressed in the plan have been repeatedly flagged by rating agencies. Gigaba says the plan will look into the public sector wages, public procurement, recapitalization of state-owned enterprises, private sector participation and energy. 
Barclays Africa has launched a court challenge to the anti-graft watchdog's findings that the lenders South African unit APSA and duly benefited from an apartheid-era bailout. South Africa's public protector, Busiswim Kwebani, said last month that her investigation had found the apartheid government and central bank breached the constitution by supplying a bank later acquired by APSA with a series of bailouts from 1986 to 1995. The Zimbabwe electricity transmission and distribution has in the first six months of this year recovered 24 million US dollars owed by customers in power bills through its payment system. Mining companies and industry owe ZEDTC over 244 million dollars, while farmers and domestic users' debts stand at over 75 and 300 million US dollars respectively. Zimbabwe Electricity Transmission and Distribution says that prepaid meters and smart meters will help clear the debt, which has been outstanding for years. Liberian President Alan Johnson Sirleaf has submitted a draft bill entitled Amendment and Restatement of the Public Financial Management Act of 2009 in order for ministers, heads of agencies and autonomous agencies, including the Central Bank of Liberia, to manage and control public resources. Johnson Sirleaf says the Public Finance Management Act of 2009 contains gaps and oversights that could be detrimental to the full and robust implementation and intent of the creation of the 2009 Act. The President maintains the need to amend and restate the previous Act forms the basis for the current Act. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.21 in South Africa, it's at 10.23 in Botswana, and at 8.87 in Zambia, 0.77 to the British pound and 0.87 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,218, platinum $907 an ounce, brand crude oil for $8.11 a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. A sports update up next with Figile Lungwati. We betting off with cricket news. England have named an unchanged starting eleven for a second test against South Africa at Trent Bridge, which starts today. Skipper Joe Root told the gathered press in Nottingham that England would keep faith in the 11 that achieved a hard-fought win at Lords. Seema, Jake Ball and fast bowling all-rounder Chris Wokes returned to training this week, which will light a fire under Mark Wood and Liam Dawson, who could make way for players who are perceived to be part of England's best 11. Woods wasn't overly impressive in the Lord's test, returning figures of 0 for 65 and 1 for 3, and with Wokes established as perhaps England's most consistent performer in the last 18 months, he will need to impress to keep his place. On to football news, newly signed Everton player Wayne Rooney marked his first game back in the team with a goal in a friendly against Kenya's Gomarhia in Tanzania on Thursday. England's record goalscorer was making his first appearance since he rejoined his boyhood club from Manchester United last week on a free transfer after 13 years at Old Trafford. 
and Rooney delighted the crowd by scoring a superb goal from long range to help the Toffees win 2-1 in what was the first match for a Premier League side in East Africa. Youngster Kiran Dowell scored the winner. And Sudan has been readmitted to international football by FIFA yesterday, but the decision came too late to prevent two of the country's clubs from being knocked out of the African Champions League. The global soccer body said in a statement that it had lifted the suspension imposed on the Sudanese FA, the SFA, on the 7th of July over a decree issued by the country's Ministry of Justice last month. FIFA says the decree, which violated FIFA's rules banning government interference in its member associations, has been dropped and Mutasin Gafar reinstated as SFA president along with its board of directors. Gafar was removed from his post by the Ministry of Justice, with police evicting members of his executive and replaced by Abdel Rahman El-Katim. Meanwhile, two Sudanese clubs, both with chances of reaching the African Champions League quarterfinals, forfeited their games 3-0 and as a result were knocked out of the competition. And on to athletics, it's all systems go for the 6th Mandela Day Marathon from Imbali Township to Hawick on the Guazulu-Natal Province's Midlands and related events on the 26th and 27th of August. The first day will see the youth and children competing over shorter distances. This year's main race of 42.2 kilometers runs under the hashtag Run for Unity to celebrate the life and beliefs of a rainbow nation by the former President Nelson Mandela. Over 4,000 entries have already been documented, an amount higher than last year's entries of just under 2,000. Meanwhile, the head of public sector at APSA, Stephen Siaga, has announced that the bank has signed an agreement with Umgungundovu Municipality to sponsor the marathon till 2020 for 400,000 U.S. dollars. APSA is proud to be part of this Mandela Marathon until 2020. We are excited to be part of this iconic marathon to mark and celebrate the legacy of our late former President Nelson Mandela. It is through such investment as a bank we are able to make a contribution to the local economic development of the greater Mgungundlovu district area and we believe that towns like Msunduzi, Richmond and Umgeni should be engines of economic activity through this marathon. Despite the current difficult economic climate, as you know, and we believe that uh, through this partnership we can give a boost. Meanwhile, the Guazulu Natal MEC for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Nomsa Dube Ngube, has warned athletes against last minute entries beyond the 31st of July. We are hoping that by then everyone who is really serious about entering the race will have registered because previously we've had to head please and all the pressures for us to open for the last minute registration. But it doesn't help us when we do that because it upsets our logistical plans in terms of the routes, in terms of the numbers, in terms of everything that we need to put in place. Finally, with tennis news, Gabini Muguruza stormed into the second Wimbledon final in three years with a 6-1-6-1 demolition of nerve-ridden Magdalena Rabirikova in just 64 minutes on centre court on Thursday. It was a dominant performance by the 2015 French Open final champion. And of course, she was delighted about her win. Pretty much, you know, she's a very talented player and she... She was playing very good during the tournament, and I think today I stepped up on the court super confident, and everything went well. Once you're in these situations, you know how to handle these matches better. And in my case, you know, I was more prepared than the first time I played, so definitely, yeah. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Davido with a track title, If, takes us to the top of the hour.